0: You're listening to episode 23 of season 13 of the GNU World Order for day 153 of 2019. Hey everybody, this is glat It's gonna be a quick episode this this time. Do, doing a lot of traveling right now, and so I'm kind of recording these in between actually staying in one place. I do want to take some listener feedback and I wanna cover some of Util Linux, specifically picking up with the the COL part of user bin. If you'll recall in the previous episode we talked about call and call CRT, so this time I want to I want to talk about the real column-related applications. So let's get started. Okay, listener feedback first and foremost. First I got some feedback from Paul, I think he got in first on Mastodon, and he says, I think it's unfair to compare the Dvorak keyboard which was based on the lie that the QWERTY keyboard was arranged to prevent the hammers in typewriters from jamming, to Linux, which evolved using open standards, like our current QWERTY keyboard configuration. I do agree that Mac users feel betrayed when a Mac user tries something else, but but are willing to accept anything Apple's give them as the standard, and thus won't easily convert to something that makes them think about their choices. Now this is interesting because I'd never heard that the, the whole QWERTY thing about running into problems with the typewriters jamming was a lie. I've always heard that that was not maybe the reason that the QWERTY keyboard was developed, but but that that was an influencing factor in in the design. It's news to me that that's not accurate, and I I would be curious to hear about the source uh, saying otherwise, actually, because as far as I know, typewriters did become jammed quite frequently. Now, whether the keyboard was designed to influence that or not. Obviously, I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't help design the keyboards. I didn't have to deal with typewriter jams. I've never really been a typewriter user. I've used one in, like, the display model in a store where you can type a couple of words and experience a typewriter, but I've, I was never... You know, I grew up on computers, and, and that was pretty... It was a pretty hard sell to, to, to go back to a typewriter if given the opportunity which I don't really remember ever having that opportunity anyway I think they'd pretty much been phased out by the time I was growing up or at least in the area and setting that I was growing up in maybe they were still used in offices or something I don't know anyway that's an interesting bit of that's an interesting assertion but I need sources darn it um but I will take the feedback nevertheless I will take the feedback as as it stands and that is to say that the comparison may be maybe grossly inaccurate, because maybe the Dvorak keyboard was uh, developed in by hyping up the problems, or the quote-unquote problems, with the QWERTY keyboard, and, and maybe that's not exactly the best analogy to draw when comparing the, 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 the mental effort it takes to switch from one thing to another, because those things are not analogous uh but the the analogy that i was making was wasn't really about the 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 products themselves it was more about the mental shift that it takes to change from one thing that you know to another thing that you don't know and and i guess in a way i was probably being presumptuous by by using myself as an example in the first place because really i mean there are lots of things that i could change probably in my life and don't change so it's it's not like I was trying to assert that because I was the because I've changed from the QWERTY to the Dvorak keyboard that I am in a more advanced being than anyone else. I was simply trying to express that I I do recognize that it is difficult to change but sometimes it is nevertheless worth changing something. That was the intent. Don't know if it was 100% clear. So I'll take this feedback. Thank you Paul. Uh, actually, I take all feedback, but uh, I mean, I'm taking this one as it is. Okay, so here's Dave Morris's feedback. This is Dave from Hacker Public Radio. If you don't listen to Hacker Public Radio, you should. It's a really good uh, series, and you'll know Dave's voice after you listen to a couple of community shows. You will totally hear this email in his voice if you listen to Hacker Public Radio community shows. And you will wonder why Ken Fallon is not responding to him right now. He says, Hi Clatu. I enjoyed this show a lot. That That's about um, episode 22, the previous one. I was fascinated by your discussion of call, particularly the reverse line feed stuff. In my first IT job, where I worked between 1977 and 1981 at the University of Lancaster, I wrote a word processor, I was teaching... That's really cool that he wrote a word processor. I was teaching Pascal evening classes at the local adult education place, and I wanted to give my students some handouts. I wrote a fairly simple program in Pascal, of course, intending to be able to print mixed-case bold and underlined text and to do line justification. Trouble was, the university's main computer was a mainframe, which had line printers for output. By default, they printed uppercase only, but we had a fancy new printer with with mixed case. I worked out how to access the lower case, but since the printing was done one line at a time, there was nothing fancy like bold or underlining. I found that it was possible to make the printer go backwards, the reverse line feed, and thereby overprinted words to get bold text and overprinted text with underscores to get underlining. I suspect that the file the, the file you were examining, which had a, um, h sequence, was doing something similar, using backspaces to overprint stuff and get bold text. No idea why that feature still exists these days, but that's what it seems like to me. And he's not the only one that said that, actually. I got feedback from Icecream95, who you'll you'll kind of know by handle by now. He's been giving me lots of Really, really interesting feedback lately. And he says the reason why Groff, and then he even references where you can find the Groff man page. So thank you for that, Ice Cream 95. I would not have, wouldn't have known how to look up the Groff man page. Uh, he outputs the caret h sequence in titles is to make the characters bold. With paper terminals, it would print the characters twice, and so with twice the ink less also a man1, by the way, detects this and automatically uses the terminal control character for bold, or for colors if you have that configured. Graf also uses uh, underscore caret hx to underline text. So that's really, really interesting that, that Ice Cream 95 and Dave Morris both knew that bit of trivia. I have no idea how these people remember these things, really. It seems like such a minor detail, a minor historical detail, and it's really quite interesting to hear about how people have had experience with that, or or just have come across it in history. Ephraim emailed me and said, The only invisible characters I normally use are RLO, Unicode symbol, uh, U20-202E, and LRO, Unicode symbol, uh, 202Delta. they come in handy when switching between English and right-to-left languages like Hebrew. I don't believe there is an ASCII equivalent to those two, so that's that's really interesting. Um, it's one of those things. The invisible characters—they they, they always—they always get on my nerves because they're well, they're invisible, right? You can't see them. Um, and I'm going to tell you about a cool little thing in Emacs, and there's probably equivalents all over the place, but since I use Emacs on a daily basis it's funny saying the word daily or the, the phrase daily basis almost seems like an understatement I feel like there should be a different a different phrase if you if you use something all day at work and then you go home and you and continue to use the same thing that, that there should be something for that anyway Emacs has a lot of great text processing tools that I might as well mention because we're on the subject still of, of invisible characters so for instance if I open up Emacs and type in control Q control h, I get the invisible control, the the caret H backspace character that that we've been talking about. Now, in in real life, so Emacs doesn't typically hide that character. It it so I see it on my screen. One wouldn't see it, for instance, if if I if I save this file as um, let's call it backspace.txt. There, that's what it's called. Now, if I go into my terminal and I do a I to be in my home directory, and I do a cat of backspace txt, I see nothing. Well, I see the the scratch buffer text that I saved out of Emacs, but but for all intents and purposes I don't see anything. I see no caret h, and even if I, yeah, if I select the text to make sure that it's not just invisible against the black background of my terminal or something weird like that, no, it's just not there as far as I can tell. So I'll open backspace.txt back up, and there's the caret h again, the backspace character, and it, it is color it's, it's a different color in Emacs to, to indicate that it's, I guess, sort of a meta character. And one of the things that you can do is, you can do um, meta X, which is the usually the alt key on your keyboard, meta X, and then describe dash car. So describe dash C-H-A-R, return, while your cursor is on the caret or the H, either one of those two. And it, it opens up this sort of, this buffer, at the bottom of the of your screen telling you that the position of this character is 149 of 150 in columns your your cursor is currently in column 0. The character is c-h displayed as c-h code point 8 number O 10 number X8, preferred car set ASCII, code point in car set 0 x08 script is Latin syntax is dot, which means punctuation. And it also tells you how to actually input it. Now I just happened to know that if I hit control Q, control H that it would input it. But if I didn't if I hadn't known that, it tells me how to how to input it in the future. So control for instance it says to input type control X eight return eight. Now why is it eight? Well Control-X-8 has a a meaning within Emacs, but then the return, well, and the return terminates that incantation. The final 8 there is referring to that code point, which it says character CH displayed as CH code point 8. So, for instance, if I do Control-X, 8, return, that's the sequence to get into this insert character mode. I can tell it either the code point number, which is 8, and I get it in my... my, um, emacs window or i can do control x 8 return and it tells me that i can also enter the unicode name so if i happen to know the unicode n- code name of this which i do which it's it's backspace then once again it's inserted into the into the emacs window so there are a couple of different ways to to enter characters that don't actually appear on your keyboard so if if you're ever using emacs and you're not sure what a character is, or how you got that character in the first place, or or why a color, why why a character is colored differently than all of your other text on your screen, then then possibly just kind of hover over that with your cursor, do it Alt X Describe Dash C H A R, and Emacs will tell you all about that character. It's it's quite useful, really. I, I use it more often than you would think. The other thing I guess to know is that there is a white space mode, which again, if you do the uh, Alt X and then just type white space, uh, white space dash mode, then you can go into white space mode where you see all kinds of hidden characters, like spaces, tabs, uh, character what it, carriage returns, all all manner of of extra stuff will appear on your screen, almost. I would argue probably possibly too much, but it, it's pretty useful in some cases, especially if you're banging your head against Python because it's there. There are levels of indentation that you can no longer sort of keep track of with your eye. Go into whitespace mode, you'll see everything quite well spelled out. So there you go. That's that's my Emacs tip for invisible characters. I think it's time to talk about `rm`. `rm` is in the user bin directory of your computer. It comes with the util Linux package, and its man page is very very short. It's pretty simple. If I look at it, call rm, it's uh, it's not even a screenful for me. I mean, it's really really a short little man page. And yes, I realize that the screenful in terms of man pages is a useless measure, but that's how I'm looking at it. In a windowed mode, the man page doesn't even take up all the whole window. So call rm remove removes columns from a file and the syntax is call rm first last you think oh probably and then the file name right no it's it's actually it says it takes input from the standard in and provides output via standard out there are no options for this it is it is what it is so for instance let's make a, a file a sample file I'll call it um, let's call it test dot file and in this file, I'm going to make, I think I'll make, um, I'm going to do this for for fun. So I'm going to make four columns, as we traditionally think of columns. And that's going to be distro, uh, basis, arch, and years. So the first one will be Slackware. The basis is Slackware. Architectures available is x32 and x64. Years, 10. I've used sucker for about 10 years now, probably a lot longer, but I think I've had this discussion with myself on this show before, so I won't go into it. Next one, Fedora, Fedora, X64, and I think they do ARM these days. How many years? Eight. We'll do RHEL, the basis for that is Fedora. X64 ARM for four years, I've used that one, I'd say, off and on. Debian, Debian, X32, X64, what don't they have? ARM, and I've used that again off and on for about three years. Let's let's call it three years. It's probably a little bit more. Uh, Mandriva basis is Mandriva x64, and uh, we'll call that three years as well, off and on. Okay, that's an incomplete list, but it's good enough for right now. So basically, what I have, if I do a cat test dot file, I've got a nice little text table here. Of, of four columns, and one, two, three, four, five, six lines. Now, if I do a cat of test.file, and then pipe it through colrm, C-O-L-R-M, and then do, for instance, one space 16. Not zero to 16, but one to 16. Now I see on my screen a nice little text table of three columns that starts with basis, Goes to arch, goes to years. So in other words, I've removed the first table column by removing the first 16 character columns from my file. So in other words, if I do that again and I do cat test file pipe col rm one to two, now I've got my my four my four columns, but it just says um, stro, aquare dora, l. Bian and ndriva. So in other words, I've I've removed just the first two characters. So the thing I'm trying to demonstrate here is that columns in this lingo, in this jargon, does not refer to tabular columns as we think of them when we when we think of columns of text. It's talking about columns like the width of your terminal columns, that kind of column basically one slot for a monospaced character. That's a column in in, in the lingo uh, or the vernacular of this of this column removal tool. That's pretty much all you can do with call rm. It does seem to require, even though the man page I thought it suggested to me that the last column was optional, for instance, and I guess technically it is, it doesn't error out if you don't give it the final column. But in reality, the last column does not seem to be all that optional. So if I do a cat test dot file pipe col RM space one and I don't give it a an ending point, then it I get zero 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 content returned in standard out. There's nothing. I mean there's lines. It shows me all the lines, but it shows me no columns, so no text at all. Now if I do col rm one space one, then I have what I would have expected from rm one which is just the whole file except with the first character dropped. And and for that reason, I can see that this could be very useful. I have myself very often had files that, that had some kind of weird native indent, for no good reason. And I always kind of used sed, or yeah, I think sed mostly, to remove those empty um, character columns. I feel like call rm could could do in a pinch, and it would have to be a very specific use case because a lot of times it is. It's not that standard, right? There's an indent for most of the 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 file, but there are there are always those couple of lines that for some reason mi- missed the the memo about being indented, and they get outdented or dedented, and and so call rm wouldn't really work that well. Call rm is very absolute. If you tell it to remove the first three columns, then it removes the first three columns. With said, at least you can say, well, remove the white space if, if the white space appears at the very beginning of the line, but not anywhere else. So it would be limited in use, but I can see it being useful. All right, so the next one is Column, and Column, C-O-L-U-M-N, is a tool to help you columnate lists. And probably the best the best way to, to sample the the real power of column is I'm going to open my test.file again, and I'm going to destroy my text table, reducing each quote-unquote column that I created for myself with just a, a one, one white space. So I've got distro space, basis space. Actually, I'll leave an arbitrary tab in there just for fun, just to mix things up. And then arch space years. And then the next line, slackware space, slackware space. So I'm I'm just, I'm destroying it such that at the end of this process, I have a jumble of text. And only I know that it's meant to be a table. I've delimited everything with a space, or a tab, and otherwise it's a word cloud. So now I'm going to pipe it through column with a dash dash table, and then dash dash here it is. Fill rows dash dash fill rows all one string just fill rows, and then space test dot file, and as expected it puts it, it outputs a nicely formatted uniform table of four columns in this or or colu- ta- tabular columns not character columns, and and it looks good it looks quite nice let's try this on Etsy FS tab that's a good one so if we do column uh, dash dash table slash Etsy slash fs tab as expected provides a one two three four five six six column output uniform columns output of Etsy fs tab and you know if you've ever looked at Etsy fs tab that a lot of times the options the file system options most of them will just say default default defaults 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 and then there's like one or two that has something really wacky, like no auto, owner, RO, comments, you know, and all this other stuff. And it throws everything off, so all those little file system check numbers at the end are are all over the place. Well, if you want to see it as a table, use column-dash-table. Dash now, there are other other ways to view things. I mean, for instance, if I go back into my test file, and instead of these white spaces... Maybe I could put like a uh, well, I could put anything really, but I guess it would probably be pretty common to have pipe characters. I feel like a lot of ASCII tables use pipes because that's kind of what we're used to seeing in a spreadsheet so if i if I put pipes in between each column each you know stand in spreadsheet column, then I am able to tell the column command use the pipe character I'm shortening my file so I don't have to do all that uh, I'm gonna tell column that my separator that's dash dash separator and then I'll put I think quote pipe quote we'll find out if I'm correct or not and then I'll put uh, table I guess and test dot file and yes that's correct so it has swapped out all the pipe characters in my in my file with with whatever amount of white space is necessary to make it a nice uniform looking table. Let's see what else we can do here. I think that's really about it for column to be honest. There are there are other other options which I've not necessarily had any luck with. So for instance, if I just type if I if I put in just column space test dot file, I get the original file with all those pipe characters in it now, in two columns. So it took the first two lines of the file, and then and and g- gave those to me line after line, and then it took the two last lines and made it a second column of this output. So I've basically got a table of a two-line table of a bunch of text separated by pipes, but it's it's a it's a pretty uniform-looking table because it doesn't know that the it doesn't know what my separator is which, obviously, we know how to solve now. We can just say separator, quote, pipe, quote, test.file. Oh, that didn't solve it. Dash, dash, table. There, now it's turned it into a table. So that that works as expected. But for instance, if I say separator, uh, quote, pipe, quote, and then do, for instance, columns, and supposedly I'm supposed to be able to give a width. Output is formatted to a width specified as number of characters. All right, so let's uh, let's put 40 in there, test dot file, and all I get is the same. I get an unaffected output, and I can try that with a couple of different combinations. I've done column dash dash columns, for instance, 80 dash dash fill rows, test file, and it 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 changes the output, but not in the way that you would expect. And then dash dash separator pipe, again, doesn't even change the output um, from 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 fill rows and then you, I have also tried dash dash output dash separator. That doesn't seem to swap out the separator character. So there's there are some subtleties here that I'm, I'm just not getting, and I'm not going to spend the time to try to figure it out, because frankly, and I know we're all thinking this anyway, awk is the way that you would really do this in real life. That said, for quick and easy, already almost a table output column might be a, a, a fix for you. It might, it might just pad a couple of characters where necessary, making it look uniform and tabular for you. That's something that that column does appear to do pretty well. Now, I think what's interesting, possibly, I think it's vaguely interesting, is the the man page for column. If I go to man column again, it's a pretty good man page. I mean, it gives, it gives examples which uh, are somewhat useful, I guess, that they don't they don't actually give the the examples for the things that don't make sense to me. For instance, the dash dash column Well, the dash dash columns technically makes sense, but the fact that output separator doesn't appear to actually work, or or the fact that fill rows doesn't actually seem to do anything useful. I mean, I'm sure there's a use case for it. I'll bet you anything. I just haven't generated the correct input for it to make a difference. But that is just it's just interesting that they don't give examples for those. It gives an example for dash for dash dash table and dash dash table and dash dash separator put together and that's it anyway i digress point being bottom of the page says the column command is part of the util linux package and is available that wasn't it uh it says history the column command appeared in 4.3 bsd-reno r-e-n-o which in america means a city very near las vegas in nevada but in New Zealand, at least, and poss- probably Australia, and possibly uh, England, I don't know, but reno, R-E-N-O, is short, it's a slang word or whatever, for renovations. And it used to confuse me thoroughly when I first moved to New Zealand. I would see reno all across, like, adverts for hardware stores, and I was going to hardware stores a lot initially, because, you know, how it is, you get a new place and you have to you have to get hammers and things like that. So, I would always see this these references to Reno and I could never figure it out until I finally realized that it wasn't Reno, it was Reno as in renovation. Anyway, the interesting thing was that BSD 4.3 BSD-Reno. I'd never heard of that before. Looked it up and um it's it, I don't know why they call it dash -Reno. I don't know the I don't know the the reason. I don't know if that was just the the, the sort of the code name for that release, or if it was unique because it somehow came by way of Reno, I'm I'm just not sure, and I can't I cannot actually determine that from what I'm reading. But I, I did come across its release announcement as archived on the on the internet, and it's kind of it's an, it's sort of an interesting read. It's from 1990, so this. This is before, I think, Linux even exists, right? I mean, 1990 is pretty early. And so this is kind of a, um, this is, you know, historically, I, I think I would consider it pretty early. I mean, for me, pre-Linux is, is early Unix to me. So it was a release for Vax and apparently Tahoe, which I don't know what that is. I mean, I'm sure I could find out, but that's it's beside the point. So it's kind of interesting because it it reads, uh, it, it it announces the, the release of, of this this 4.3 BSD-Reno thing, which they say is an intermediate step towards their their goal of 4.4 BSD, which that's that's common. It says, unlike past test releases, 4.3 BSD-Reno is being made generally available to 4.3 BSD licensees and 4.3 BSD Reno may be redistributed and used in released products within the usual licensing constraints. However, you will have to upgrade any code that you use from 4.3 to 4.4 code within one year of the release. And it's just kind of interesting because it's, it's just funny and strange to hear licensing with regards to BSD, because obviously today BSD is famously... The, the license isn't even a question. I mean, it's the, that's the license that you go to when you don't even want to talk about licensing. It's just, it's a BSD license. You can do whatever you want to with it, aside from removing all signs of the original author. It says, the license to 4.3 BSD Reno is simply an addendum to the 4.3 BSD license. Sites without a 4.3 license may obtain both 4.3 BSD and 4 4- 3BSD Reno simultaneously, but must sign a 4.3BSD license as well as the addendum. Contact the distribution office for 4.3BSD licensing information. 4.3BSD is available only to sites with Unix slash 32V system 3 or system 5, or, you know, system V, whatever, source licenses with AT&T. We are actively working to decrease the amount of at code in the system. We expect that we will provide a subset of 4.4BSD without the AT&T code to sites without requiring the AT&T license. However, we are not prepared to make that determination for this release, so we are providing only tapes with the complete system at this time." So they were they were still carving out those that, that, that bit of at code that still required licensing. Fascinating, and just a... sort of a bone-chilling glance at the old way of of Unix. Um, there are many times that I... I kick myself for not getting into Unix sooner, and then sometimes I read things like this, and I think, you know what, if I even if I'd been mentally prepared for Unix way back then, I don't know that that would... It, it wouldn't have... It, I wouldn't have been that interested in it, I don't think. Not at least until Linux, because uh, the licensing stuff just I mean it was still it was nineteen ninety and the licensing stuff hadn't been ironed out yet. I'm not blaming BSD obviously for that. They're working on it at this point. They it's pretty clear from their from their release that they're they're moving towards that as fast as they can. But it's it's a tough sell to 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 be really to, to go head over heels for something that that just requires a bunch more licensing concerns. I mean, in other words, I, I guess I can see why someone would have opted for Solaris or Next instead of BSD at, at this time, because really there, 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 was, there were proprietary issues on, on, on all fronts. And it kind of, once again, kind of reinforces what a big deal Linux was at the time. It must have been absolutely mind-blowing... For a geek wanting to get into Unix, or or a Unix geek, a pre-existing Unix, a pre a geek with a pre-existing Unix condition, I can I can imagine them getting really excited about Linux. And as I think I've said before, I I remember people being excited about Linux and me not understanding it at all. I just thought it was something that you ran on a Windows machine, and so I didn't. I had no interest in it. I don't know why I thought that. Someone, someone didn't explain this properly to me, and I had people yell at me about how Linux was a big deal and, and I should know about it because I was into computers, which I wasn't at the time. I, I, I was still telling myself I didn't care about computers at that time. Everyone else knew, but I didn't. Um, and I just never really understood what was going on with it. But I could I could see if you were using UNIX at that time, I can see why Linux would have been a huge deal. I mean, and, and you know, it's funny because I, I say it as if though it's a huge deal. I mean it still is a huge deal right for people who really care about what they're running that open license is a huge deal it's 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 um it's profound I mean the, the amount of licensing stuff that I don't have to care about on a day-to-day basis is is enormous now and that's because of Linux but it is it is interesting because me and Deep Geek were actually just talking about this the other day via email and that is that that there's the there's this weird you know open source is kind of for all intents and purposes it's kind of dead now in a weird way and I say it's dead in the sense as as Deep Geek says in the in the sense that Frederick Nietzsche said God was dead. It's it's dead because it's kind of things have have moved on from being centered around this one concept. So Deep Geek in an email says I'm. Uh, he's talking about something else, actually, but he says, I meant it in the same way that the philosopher Fred Nietzsche, he's on uh, casual terms with, with Frederick Nietzsche, meant God is dead. Not that I think a human-like father figure in the sky keeled over, but rather as that it is, um, that it is not the most important thing anymore, that the age of faith is over, and people who act pious are really hypocrites because that is not the way that our current culture works more specifically money is the new God. offer the pious person a job as a corporate sp- spokesperson and see what comes out of his mouth. So that was just this is kind of a little bit out of context, but the the idea is that there was this thing that was super sort of in the limelight, right was it was it was the, it was the central concern of, of society and then somehow everyone it just kind of it, people kind of move on. Not necessarily away, but they move on. And in, in a sense, open source is like that. It has moved. We have all moved on from open source. And you can take that as a negative or a positive thing. By which I mean, you could look at it and say, oh my gosh, we don't care about open source anymore. And that is a concern. We should all care about open source. We shouldn't say, okay, we, we won, we're, we're done. But at the same time, we kind of have won. I mean, the world now doesn't really question the idea of open source there may be a a significant portion of the world that questions whether their own stuff should be open source but they certainly don't question the concept of open source anymore it is no longer as everyone is saying it's no longer the underdog it is no longer the exception to the rule it is the rule now people people assume that open source exists now, again, that doesn't mean everyone's just releasing stuff as open source, and therein lies the danger. But it is an assumption and a reliance that that open source exists. This stuff has to exist. The internet runs on open source, and a lot of things run on the internet. It had better exist, and that's just how it is. And so in a, in a way, it's it's taken for granted, is what I'm trying to say. And so it's interesting to read old releases like this where licensing was still a concern, even for what is now a bastion of not having to worry about licensing. Anyway, that was BSD 4.3-Reno. Don't know why it existed, but it's there, and it provided us with a column command. That's it for this episode. I have to go. I have to run off to the South Island. So thanks for listening, I'll talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order cast This has been Clatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the FreeNode network, usually in channels such as cast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Clatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Clatu at member.fsf.org. That's Clatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, GNU and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.